Ed Trusted, Season 1, The Critical Race Theory Craze That is Sweeping the Nation. Episode 3, What Are Teachers Teaching? As a government politics teacher who's teaching an AP-aligned course, my course articulation says that I need to talk about Reconstruction, I need to talk about Jim Crow voter suppression, I need to talk about Supreme Court precedents like Brown versus Board, plus Ferguson, Love versus Virginia. I talk about the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the fact that basically Black Americans became full citizens basically in 1964. I talk about current voter ID laws, I talk about felony voting laws, I talk about racial gerrymandering. According to the moral panickers on the political right, that's critical race theory. But that's just civics, that's just history. And so what you're really seeing is an effort to ban the effective and complete telling of history. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangi Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. This is the third episode of a new podcast, Ed Trusted. In this first season, we're talking about the accusation that the nation's schools have been taken over by an ideology bent on racial division and the political indoctrination of children, namely critical race theory. That accusation has prompted something on the order of half the states to in some way move to restrict the instruction schools provide children, according to an analysis by Education Week. Some specifically mention critical race theory as something to be forbidden. In our opening episode, we had a fabulous conversation with Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, a scholar who brought the analysis of critical race theory to the field of education. In our second episode, we spoke with legal scholar Matthew Shaw and ACLU attorney Emerson Sykes about the many legal challenges posed by the laws being passed. In this episode, we're going to take a step back and try to get a sense of what teachers are actually teaching in classrooms. To talk with us, we have three terrific guests. Anne Lutz Fernandez is a longtime high school English teacher from Connecticut who just retired at the end of this last school year. She is also author of Schooled, in which she and anthropologist Catherine Lutz profiled in depth nine teachers from across the country. Welcome, Anne. Thanks for having me. Anton Schulski is the brand new president of the National Council for the Social Studies, which is the membership organization of social studies teachers around the country, and a longtime social studies teacher himself from Colorado. Welcome, Anton. Glad to be here. And Nathan Bowling is a high school social studies teacher who was Washington State's Teacher of the Year in 2016 and a finalist for the National Teacher of the Year Award. He and his wife moved to Abu Dhabi to teach in 2019, but he's back in the States this summer. Welcome, Nate. Thanks for having me. Let's begin by acknowledging something really obvious. The United States has about 3.7 million teachers in roughly 100,000 schools and more than 13,000 school districts. We have a very decentralized system, and there is no way to honestly say that we know what teachers say or do. But there are some ways to gather information and knowledge, and and you attempted to do just that in your book, Schooled. Can you talk about some of what you found? Sure. 
So my co-author and I uh, traveled the country to meet teachers, and we, we met teachers and interviewed teachers in a wide variety of settings. So as you mentioned, there are huge numbers of schools, but there are also an incredible variety of schools. So we talked to teachers in urban, suburban, rural settings, and everything in between. We talked to teachers in public schools, in independent schools, in religious schools. We even talked to homeschooling parents. And we talked to teachers who were at every stage of their career um, and um, across you know, every age group and discipline. So our goal was to try to get a sense of why teachers were teaching and how they were teaching. And we did uh, also look at surveys that were available that helped us with that. But the insights that we gained from talking to individual teachers was remarkable. And really we came to deeply understand uh, that teachers aren't just teaching skills. They don't just see themselves as delivering content, but they really see their mission also as helping to shape the adults that their students will become. And this varies very much based on where they teach. So for one teacher that may be a family focused traditionalist, for another teacher that might be a global innovator, uh, for another teacher that might be um, a um, community-minded um, enterpriser. So there's all uh, kinds of, of images that um, different communities have for their, their children. And what we found is that teachers tend to reflect uh, the values um, of their uh, communities in which they teach. They tend to reflect the image of the child uh, as an adult that those communities have in mind for them. So, um, you know, while in some places teachers can't afford to live where they teach, um, there's lots of teachers who teach where they grew up. There's lots of teachers who teach in the communities in which they live. And uh, so their, their values and their political leanings often mirror that of their communities. And I think the reason that's important to our conversation today is that there's an underlying premise to a lot of the current divisive concepts legislation or the legislation that's meant to uh, prevent CRT or, or critical race theory from being taught in the schools. There's an underlying premise there that teachers are some bunch of radical leftists that are parachuting in to communities from somewhere uh, to indoctrinate children. And that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, Teachers, while they are more liberal generally than the, the general population on a national level, it's not a dramatic uh, difference. Um, Education Week did a survey not long after the 2016 election and 41% of K-12 teachers identified themselves as Democrats, where a Pew uh, poll of registered voters across the nation at the same time had 33% self-identifying as Democrats. And the same percentage of teachers identified themselves as Republicans, as identified themselves as Republicans among the general population. So the underlying premise that teachers are highly liberal, um, even leftist, even radical, um, is not borne out by either my qualitative research or by the quantitative research. So. Anton, you're, you're a longtime social studies teacher, and as the new president of the National Council for the Social Studies, I imagine you have a sense of who your members are. Are social studies teachers different from what Anne has found, or, or does that resonate with you as well? 
Uh, no, I, th- I think Ann hit hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, our organization, in much the same way that that Ann's research kind of encompassed everything, our organization is the same thing. Um, you know, we represent um, certainly public school teachers, but also private parochial charter school um, homeschool uh, educators uh, are part of our organization, as well as um, college and university professors who are training the next generation of uh, teachers. Um, and, you know, they, we come from across the country. We come from large cities, um, small towns, uh, from, you know, the Northeast to out here in the Rockies uh, and and all over. And, and very much, I think, that our membership reflects the general public. So I think that, that, that she's right, Anne is right on. So, so they don't have a mission of pushing an agenda of what's being called race essentialism and making white children feel guilty for the crimes of the nation? What is race <laughs> essentialism? Does anyone have a, a definition, by the way? Well, it's a uh, new term to me. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's, a lot of this has become, um, uh, you know, I, I, for I think many of our teachers across the country, we've had to kind of take a step back and, and do a little bit of research on our own. And I know that, that many have, have done so. Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the mission, for example, the National Council of Social Studies is, is basically to help advocate, build capacity for social high quality social studies curriculum across the board. Um, so nowhere, you know, in any of our mission or vision, do we uh, subscribe to anything other than good sound social studies instruction. So, Nate, um, you're also a longtime social studies teacher, but you're no longer teaching in the United States. And I thought it would be interesting to hear why and what your experience has been in, uh, has been in Abu Dhabi in comparison to teaching here. Yeah, um, I taught for 13 years in Tacoma, Washington, my hometown. And I kind of fit the profile you were talking about earlier on about being from the place you're from and teaching the community. And at the end of 13 years, I just wanted to do something different, but I didn't want to be a principal. I didn't want to run a charter school. Both opportunities were offered. I didn't want to teach education yet. Like I still had time in the classroom in front of me, uh, but I saw burnout coming given the pace I was, I was working at. And so I decided to change my venue and I moved overseas to Abu Dhabi. And so I work at an American embassy school called the American Community School. Uh, there I teach AP government politics and AP comparative politics and a global studies class. And so I'm teaching basically the same things that I was teaching back in the United States overseas to mainly American students. One of the points that I want to make, because we're talking about this critical race theory moral panic that's happening right now. And I think that, that language of moral panic is important. We've seen moral panics of this ilk before. Uh, back in the 1990s, there was the big ooga booga that teachers in Oakland were teaching Ebonics to white kids and they were going to have all the white kids speaking like rappers. That was a moral panic. We saw a moral panic in 2018 about transgender bathrooms. And so I want to just lay out that what we're seeing right now is moral panic. Now, the problem with this moral panic in particular is the legislative agenda that's being pursued by people in states like Texas and Florida is actually moving towards teacher censorship. And that framing to me is very important. That framing has been used by Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, and I wanna just use that language really fast that we have a moral panic that's leading to legislation that's gonna cause teacher censorship. Uh, I'll add that the United Arab Emirates where I teach, uh, I'm not there right now, I'm here in Tacoma uh, for the summer, but where I teach is an absolute monarchy. And uh, it is not a democracy at all, but the restrictions that are being put, that are being placed on teachers in the United States by state legislatures are more restrictive than any limitations I face back over there. And so put differently, 
People in the United States like to point at the Middle East and go, oh, look how authoritarian that place is. That's an autocratic state. It's not a democracy. But the restrictions being put on teachers in Florida, Texas, and many other states are more restrictive than anything I face in the Gulf. That's so interesting that we, I think that's a really important point to bring up is placing what's happening with teachers now in the context of a global situation. Because like you said, Nate, we tend to think there are restrictions in other places, but we are this freewheeling society and we are becoming less so that and we're seeing it sort of really trickle down in the classroom. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Well, if I may, this is this is not unfamiliar to us as teachers. Like we've been through this before. This is essentially a redux of the Scopes Monkey trial. And the Supreme Court has litigated this. Like Epperson versus Arkansas basically defends the right of teacher speech. And if you like, I can pull up the actual like quotation from the uh, from the SCOTUS, but like this is nothing new. This is essentially an attack on teacher speech for political motivated reasons uh, coming from the political right in the United States. And that's all it is. Well, in our last episode, uh, our legal scholars uh, talked about how the state does have some ability to restrict teachers in the K-12 setting. What they, what the state doesn't have um, the ability to do or is not supposed to have the ability to do is limit what students can learn and speak about and talk about. And that actually seems to me to be the point of these some of these bills is that students are going to be denied the ability to actually talk about uh, very uncomfortable uh, you know uh, kinds of things. In fact, um, they are being prevented from feeling discomfort and much of the language of these bills is around uh, Teachers shall not require students to feel discomfort. Um, is first of all, I mean, well, first of all, is it possible to educate students without some discomfort? I mean, I always am uncomfortable when I'm learning new things. Well, I'll tell you that um, you know, having spent twenty years teaching middle school and high school students, and having been one myself. Uh, teenagers are uncomfortable a lot of the time. <laughs> um, but seriously, you know, I, I, I find it um, fascinating um, from an English teacher's perspective because so much of what we have traditionally uh, as teachers had, uh, you know, in our book rooms available for us to teach have been classic texts that, you know, when I teach them, my students often say, can we teach something that has a happy ending? Can we teach something that's not so disturbing, that's not so dark? Um, so a lot of the classic texts that, that students have been reading for generations is quite dark and quite um, discomforting. Um, and ironically, even though they students say that um, about what they're reading, when given a choice of texts to read, um, and a lot of what I fear is going to come out of this legislation is censorship of specific, we've already seen it, specific texts in the English classroom, uh, contemporary texts in particular. Um, when students are given choices of, of those contemporary texts, they tend to choose texts that take them out of their comfort zone. Um, and while um, English teachers prize the ability to uh, provide their students with texts where they can see themselves in the text. Um, 
my students tend to uh, look very broadly and, and choose texts that take them to other parts of the world or other parts of the country. Um, and they tend to be uh, texts that tackle difficult social issues and a lot of uncomfortable topics. Um, and even if those texts make them uncomfortable, um, students rise to the occasion and are able to read them critically, enjoy and appreciate their literary value and uh, to discuss in very mature ways uh, difficult issues. Tanchi, is that something that you would agree with from your... Tanchi, I should add, was a longtime English teacher and does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely does. Um, I found, and I think, and it's also the skill of the teacher that allows students to really sit in the discomfort that's necessary. And to echo Anne's point, when given the choice, kids want to learn. You know, Karen, you and I have said this thing a lot. Kids know what school is about. They know school is a place where they're meant to learn a bunch of stuff and learn how to do a bunch of stuff. And so uh, in the simplest terms of that, and I think what we're seeing now is this real attack on students' right to really do the thing that they know school is about, and that is to learn. And, and, and how far are we willing to go? So, you know, these are tough topics that are happening in real time in kids' actual lives, you know, their lives outside of school, and to deny them the ability to sit under experienced adults who can help them make sense of it, I think is part of the rub that we're not talking about either. That, you know, they're, these are, they're not living their lives in vacuums. You know, the things that, that critical race theory is asking them to consider by way of a lens, a lens of learning, is also something that they are living on a daily basis. And so robbing them of that ability to sit with their peers and the adults to help them process is also as disturbing as the other acts themselves. This also goes to the point that, and I think you, you, you know, both are, are pointing out the fact that when we talk about what happens in classrooms, right, more times than not, this, this stuff doesn't happen, you know, these kinds of conversations don't happen on the very first day of school. Right. I think one of the things that 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 has to occur in order for 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 really in-depth conversations and, and to kind of move the needle, as it were, you know, uh, our best educators are looking to to establish the kind of relationships uh, with their students um, to provide a safe uh, a safe space for our students to have these conversations. And so, you know, uh, my my eldest daughter is a preschool teacher uh, who just finishing up her, she's starting her third year here in a couple of weeks. And, you know, with their preschool kids, you know, a lot of it is just literally the basics of, you know, how to line up and, you know, where to hang your coat and those kinds of things. And, and it takes time to, to do that in the same way it takes time in our English and social studies classroom. And I would say in all our classes um, to, to really help motivate our students. Let's talk about social studies because that's kind of that. I mean, even though English is the place where probably a lot of these kinds of topics actually arise, the social studies is where the attacks are uh, coming to. The textbooks used in classrooms throughout the country have long glided over very unpleasant truths or sometimes just flat out lied to them. 
Uh, this has been documented, for example, by historian James Lowen in his book, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, which he updated in 2018. So fairly, uh, fairly recent um, review of textbooks. And he, the lies he's talking about range from lost cause mythology to pretending that deliberate genocidal murder of Native Americans never happened. When students go through and read these textbooks, they're not really reading real history. How do, like, how do social studies teachers navigate that uh, in your experience, Antone? Well, um, so first of all, I'll point out that I'm going to date myself. Um, I'm about to enter my 38th year of teaching. For some of us, when, when we were students ourselves, you know, the textbooks that we were given fit that kind of mold that, that, that James Lowen was talking about, right? Which was pretty much there was a single, there were a couple of textbooks that were typically used across the country. Um, New York, California, Texas were the largest kind of states that, that bought textbooks in bulk. Um, and so more times than not, those textbooks were kind of written to address the needs, at least, you know, certainly back in the 70s and then through the 80s, um, the needs uh, and desires of those states. And, and yeah, the textbooks were pretty bland. Um, and I've always pointed out to my students that, you know, the textbooks, um, they're not the be all end all to everything. And I think most teachers have have kind of uh, move beyond that. And, and so, of course, now in the last, you know, certainly since I started teaching, with the advent of more sources, um, more uh, stories being told, uh, and, and more stories being uncovered, um, you know, that, that makes for, uh, that allows teachers to, to kind of uh, broaden the scope of what they're using inside the classroom. So, uh, you know, I, I there are some teachers who have to rely who have to rely upon the textbooks. Um, you know, those are those are decisions that are made either by a state or by local school boards. There are other teachers who um, are granted a little bit more freedom, um, ironically enough, to uh, supplement uh, what they're using in the classroom. But again, I think that's also that's also really age appropriate as well, right? Um, so again, the teachers. You know, they know their students better than anybody. Well, I, I I was just talking with a, a curriculum, the head of a uh, uh, of curriculum for a charter school in the Midwest, and but he's he's taught in a number of schools, and he said, "Look, in my experience, social studies teachers are coaches. Now, this is the Midwest." Uh, as opposed to where you guys, you guys are Western and it doesn't, this doesn't apply, right? But uh, in the Midwest and the South, often uh, coaches are, they have to teach something. There's only so many PE classes they can teach. And so they're often given social studies as like, well, anybody can teach social study. That's not my opinion, but, um, but and they are probably most reliant, I would imagine, on the textbooks. And are textbooks really much better than they were? Are you thinking they're better or you're just thinking that your ideal social studies teacher doesn't rely on the textbook that much? Um, I think that, you know, that's going to vary. And again, that's going to vary from across the country. You know, we do have we 
we do have some communities where the textbook um, is um, the resource that the teacher relies upon um, because there may not be access to other kinds of resources. And so that makes it somewhat problematic. Um, I'm gonna push back a little bit on the, on the teacher coach um, stereotype because I think uh, so many of our social studies educators across the country uh, in their own way are, are actually, uh, and, and I'm gonna be careful how I use the term coach, they're coaching our kids, right? They're, they're, they're pushing them to really kind of expand their thinking um, and, and to uh, really move beyond what's, what's kind of comfortable. And if you think about what an athletic coach is trying to do, that's probably in the same vein. I'm not opposed uh, to coaches so, teaching. All I'm saying is they may not have a real expertise in history. Okay, Nate, I, I hope you can correct me on that. If I may, this points out some of the mistruths, I will say, within the advocates of the teacher censorship bills. So on one hand, they're saying there's this uh, massive indoctrination campaign happening by radical leftists. And on the other hand, we're being told that all the coaches, sorry, all the social teachers are coaches who are textbook uh, dependent. Both those things can't be true at the same time. Uh, I'll add that one of the things that's really worth, that's really important to kind of like plant a stake in the conversation is, is that nobody is actually teaching critical race theory in K-12 schools. And so like we're having a conversation about a phenomenon that doesn't actually exist. And so the reason why this phenomenon has become a moral panic is it's a useful linguistic tool for them. When, when the opponents of critical race theory are talking about CRT, they're really talking about three things. They're talking about anti-racist teaching and pedagogy. Uh, they're talking about PD activities are grounded in diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're talking about history they don't like. Now, the issue is, is that if I say I am anti-anti-racist, that means I'm racist or I'm pro-racist. If I say I'm anti-DEI, that means I'm opposed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. If I say I want to censor history I don't like, then like, hey, I'm playing, I'm taking off my mask and showing my face for dealing my cards. So what they do is, and what they're doing rhetorically is, is they're lumping all these things into be the CRT boogeyman and then saying, I'm anti-CRT. And so this is linguistic ploy that I just want to name really fast. And so kind of three points here. One, nobody's actually teaching CRT in American schools. If it was happening, there would be lesson plans that we've seen. There've been examples, right when media would ran with them, there's no examples to see. Okay. Two, either the teachers are left-wing indoctrinators or they're all coaches, but they can't be true at the same time. Right. And then thing three, this is all about taking control of the historical narrative of the United States. This is a response to the 1619 project. This is a response to the Juneteenth uh, becoming national law. This is a response to basically the progress that Black Americans have made and that we've made in integrating our points of view and our stories in the United States. And so, like, I just want to own this. As a government politics teacher who's teaching an AP aligned course, my course articulation says that I need to talk about Reconstruction. I need to talk about Jim Crow voter suppression. I need to talk about Supreme Court precedents like Brown versus Board, Plessy versus Ferguson, Loving versus Virginia. I talk about the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the fact that basically Black Americans have not been full citizens, sorry, became full citizens basically in 1964. I talk about current voter ID laws. I talk about felony voting laws. I talk about racial gerrymandering, okay? According to the moral panickers on the political right, that's critical race theory. But that's just civics. That's just history. 
And so what you're really seeing is an effort to ban the effective and complete telling of history. Uh, and, and, and I was going to say real quickly, and, and to, to just to support what Nate was talking about, if you look at the state standards, the state history standards and the state government standards across the country, the terms critical race theory are nowhere to be found. And so, you know, they're just they're, they're nope. not there. They're nowhere. Um, that, because they're not doing it. You know, they're just they're they might be asking kids to do perspective adopting and trying to see from multiple lenses and multiple understandings. But that's part of the standards themselves, which is not necessarily about critical race theory at all. My concern is that there there is a goal to shut down teachers teaching outside of the textbook um, and to make us afraid and to intimidate us from searching for other texts because the textbooks are what they can control. That's much easier to control um, what's in a textbook that you order for your state or your district or your school. And to me, I mean, I, I don't teach uh, history, but I have taught American studies with a history partner, and I've taught um, American literature and, and, and a variety of courses, including uh, AP language, where we're using a lot of nonfiction texts. And if I was limited to uh, texts that had been pre-approved by some political group, <laughs> Um, there is a whole host of things I'm not going to be doing well. I'm not going to be teaching well, full stop. But one of the things that I'm not going to be doing well is connecting the past and the present, which is clearly one of the goals of this legislation as well. Um, but as far as teachers are concerned, we need to make what we're teaching relevant to our students. And there's no better way to do that than by connecting literature from the past or history events from the past to the present. So if I'm teaching the crucible and I don't stop to help students understand why somebody might falsely confess today and why false confessions and in the justice system are a problem today, why do they care so much about these people in Puritan times who are not, uh, uh, you know, they, they can't understand them and they can't necessarily understand why we're studying this book right now. Um, and so that's one of my, my greatest concerns here is that this is about cutting that link between the past and the present. Um, and that's alarming to me. Well, and intimidating teachers out of teaching what they consider to be relevant tests, uh, texts. So uh, a school board in Sullivan County, Ten Tennessee, fired a teacher after he shared an article by Ta-Nehisi Coates in a poem uh, about white supremacy with his contemporary issues class. I mean, if he's fired, are other teachers going to think, I, I don't want to be fired. I've got kids. I've got a mortgage. I, you know, like, I, I'll just avoid that. Um, Nate? But, but Karen, can I just... But I you said something in a very normal tone that is insane. And I want to make sure this is heard by the room, right? A teacher has a contemporary issues class and taught about race in America and read MacArthur Genius Grant award-winning, highly prolific writer, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and was terminated from his job. That is the future of American education if the folks who are passing these laws get their ways. Here's the thing. I'm here in Washington State right now. Washington State is a uh, state that has strong unions. We have due process rights. Uh, I feel like teachers here are very emboldened and they're like, I'm going to do what I keep doing. 
but other folks aren't as fortunate as teachers up here. And teachers in many states, many states this year are going to feel uh, a chilling, uh, they're going to feel the power of the state working to chill their speech. And what's fascinating about this moral panic, and I'm going to keep that language moral panic that we're having right now is the same folks who are promoting this moral panic, not less than a month ago, we're talking about cancel culture and censorship. And so now they've gone from being panicked about cancel culture to actually using the power of the state to censor teachers and students in classrooms. And that hypocrisy is breathtaking once you take it in. So Anton, you represent uh, social studies teachers across the country. What are you hearing from your members? Are you hearing that they're worried that they're going to be censored? Uh, it's not only... Uh that uh, I, it's it's also um, then again here's here's a change uh, over the course of my career right when I started um, my name would have been listed in a uh, print directory with a phone number that that basically was the phone number to the school that you could you know call and someone would write down a message and put it in my mailbox like a mailbox kind of thing. Uh, you really are dating yourself. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> now of course uh, all of us have. Uh, uh, an email, uh, and certainly a web presence, but certainly, uh, you know, as part of it is, is my email is out there, um, for, uh, parents and the public to see. And what we've begun to, to witness, uh, unfortunately is, um, you know, teachers finding themselves worse yet over the summer, if they bothered to check their school email, uh, now kind of being caught, um, in that, in those, in those crosshairs that that we've been discussing, right? Um, the the threats are coming. You're not going to teach this. Uh, you, you know, uh, I will pull my kid out of your class should you address these kinds of issues. And you know, as Nate pointed out, it it, it varies across the country, right? There are some states where, because it's a state sanctioned curriculum, um, you know, everybody in theory, everybody in that state is is under the same guise. Uh, in other states, it might be more of a local school board making these decisions, and so that puts some teachers uh, in some rather uncomfortable situations. And as you pointed out, you know, teachers are are going to have to kind of um, make the decision that's best for themselves as well as for their students. And sometimes those are not the those may not be mutually exclusive, um, because as you point out. Uh, you know, there are teachers who live in communities um, where these kind of discussions may not be um, accepted. And at the same time, too, uh, as pointed out, you know, our teachers uh, across the across the spectrum uh, hold different political views. Um, and so, um, you know, there are some teachers who may feel that, you know, these kind of discussions are left best in other venues. Um, yeah, that's an important piece that has to be brought up, too, that there are teachers who don't recognize or don't want to really help students understand the complex identity that is America. They don't want that because they don't, they themselves don't believe in it. They themselves hold to a set of ideals that America is the democratizer of the world. America is, you know, the shining star on the hill, blah, blah, blah. And, and they don't want to um, disrupt that sort of what they deem as an unpatriotic way of presenting the American landscape, particularly with very young children. And so I think that is something that we have to be willing to talk about, that there are teachers who are fully on board with this. So 
Nate, you kind of laid out three things that have gotten mushed together, and you did a brilliant mm-hmm. job doing that, and I'm going to get it wrong. I'm not going to get it exactly right. <laughs> but but what you said was three things got are mushed together. Critical race theory, which isn't being taught in schools, but, you know, like— I don't even want to go there because let's let's you know um, let's just own that critical race theory. It does exist and does provide a useful lens. Um, you you might not agree with it, but you know it's a useful lens to look at uh, American history and and American society. Um, two div- div- uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion professional development that comes into. Uh, districts, and three, the history. And we've kind of talked a bit about the history. I want to just talk about the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, because I think some of the moral panic is around that. And, you know, the the, the sort of most inflammatory stories you hear are when kids come home from school and they tell their mom that they've been uh, you know, ranked on an oppressor scale. And I don't know that this actually happens anywhere in classrooms, but there are professional development sort of courses that are going out into uh, school districts where I am told teachers do ask themselves to uh, do do are asked to to kind of put themselves on an oppressor scale. D- do have any of you ever uh, experienced that kind of professional development? And if so, like, is it useful? Is it helpful? Or does it just create backlash? I've certainly never had professional development as you describe it. I think in the last couple of years, I've seen um, small attempts <laughs> to provide um, educators with um, some understanding of how to handle. Uh, some of the current events that are in our students' you know, newsfeed and, and all over their phones. Um, but I would say that generally speaking, it's been, in my experience and the teachers I've spoken to, um, those are like much professional development, <laughs> perhaps a singular day, uh, half a day, an hour and a half. Um, where half, half of the hour and a half is a warm up where we're getting to know each other. <laughs> um, so just uh, to, to suggest that there are um, serious programs that are um, doing exactly what you've mentioned there, um, I find uh, hard to believe. If I may, if the issue is isolated incidents within professional development, then that should be addressed by the local governance agencies who are the school boards. The solution to isolated incidents of PD is not to pass legislation at the state level that fundamentally transforms instruction within classrooms. Now, I I, want to just zoom in on this for a second here. Uh, What people are having a panic about is conversations about privilege. one of the framings that I think is important is to acknowledge that like, yes, white privilege exists, but many other privileges exist as well. I'm a very privileged person. I am heterosexual. I am a Christian. I am tall. I am able-bodied. I'm pretty handsome, I think. These are all forms of privilege. These are all forms of privilege that I possess. 
And so there is a, on the political right in the United States, there is a rejection of privileged conversations, but like privilege is real. And oftentimes in low-income schools, the teachers who are educating the students are actually wealthier than the families and they don't acknowledge and understand the privilege bring to the classroom. And so conversations like this are essential to get staffs to understand what's happening in the communities that they serve. And so if the actual issue is that there's some overzealous PD, then like, let's have that conversation. But the legislation passed by Florida and by Texas and by Arizona ain't that. And I think we could argue that there's underzealous PD, that the teachers are, are not being trained how to have meaningful conversations with their students about race, about gender, um, about any uh, so-called divisive issue. Um, all of us on January 7th this year had to go in um, to our classrooms or get on Zoom with our students and try to have a conversation about um, what had happened at the Capitol the day before. Um, that is a divisive issue where in America today, the facts of what happened the day before uh, is, are in contention. Um, teachers need training in this new world right now, <laughs> how to handle uh, conversations with their students that wouldn't have been divisive five years ago. Um, but they still need training, and I've never had good training, I'll say it, um, except for anything that I might have sought out and I didn't see, seek out enough, um, training on how to have those meaningful conversations with, with children that are safe and um, if, dis if uncomfortable, um, productive. Um, I've felt my way through for 20 years, as, as most teachers do. Um, hoping that I don't do more damage than good. Um, we still have, in addition to teachers who believe in um, the, the shining city on the hill narrative, we still have teachers in 2021 who are racist and sexist. Um, I know that comes as a shock. Um, I told you they were a diverse group. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, Indeed. And so, um, you know, we could back up to five or 10 years ago and work on the problems we had then and, and get a head start on where we are right now um, in, in terms of providing meaningful um, training for, for, for uh, teachers. And perhaps some of that training. Oh, go ahead, Karen. This seemed to come to a head. Um, you mentioned January 6th, but really the, the murder of George Floyd kind of sparked this desire. It seems to me, I mean, I'm not part of the classroom, so you correct me if I'm wrong. It seemed to spark a desire in students to kind of explain to me how a police officer could murder someone on a camera knowing he was being filmed and assuming he would walk, you know, that he could murder someone on camera with impunity. Explain to me how this meshes with everything you've been telling me about America. And it it, that was the kind of moment of cognitive dissonance, I think, for a lot of not just students, but adults as well. Um, and that seemed to s sort of set this all off because all of a sudden teachers are like looking around for, well, what can I use to explain this? They started using the 1619 project and that, and, and now we're Molly over the, over the windmill on, on the moral panic. I mean, is that the correct 
uh, uh, sequence of actions or not? One thing I would say, Karen, is that that dissonance that you speak of was white dissonance. And I want to like absolutely. name that super yes, clear. Absolutely. Um, because yes. a whole thank you. There were, you know, <laughs> thank you for that I just want to make that clear because I would tell you from kindergarten all the way up, there were very few black and brown students who were who saw that action and go, I can't believe that happened. Right. Like those, there were kids and families and communities that were like, oh yeah, he's gonna walk. Like they, they were already down the road onto their, they were out there playing hopscotch. Like, oh, this is on, we know what's going to happen. And so when we talk about the dissonance and want to be clear about where it's coming from, and it really is the problem that we have decided this identity of America. And anytime you put anything in the world that challenges that, you get this moral panic and outrage from a particular part of our community of American citizens. Yes, thank you for that clarification. Well, I was just going to add, so a couple of things. I think yeah, we had a lot of things that were kind of building with, with that. Um, because I think it goes, be, it certainly goes beyond what happened uh, in, with, with the George Floyd um, incident and the fallout that came from that. I mean, if you go farther back, you know, there have, there have been a lot of times where, where and as Angie said, Right. Uh, my my black and brown students are going, OK, yeah, um, uh, it's going to happen. Um, and it would go farther back. Right. And, and 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 then they get to January 7th. Actually, on January 6th, I had the good fortune of actually teaching class that day. Um, and my senior international baccalaureate students, um, you know, my lesson plan for the day got thrown out the window and we began to to take a look at what was going on. And, you know, and happening at the Capitol. And, we're, and, and my kids, they're not watching this thing for five minutes. And they're already saying, hey, you know, if that had been a crowd of black and brown uh, citizens, uh, the response would have been a heck of a lot different. That was totally unprompted. I didn't say anything. I just, was, we were watching it at that point. And my students are the ones piping up. And, and I had a pretty diverse group of students uh, last year. And so, you know, our students are pretty, pretty aware of what's going on. Uh, yeah, yes, uh, our students know. Uh, the other thing I think that has kind of exacerbated all of this is unfortunately for, and again, it depended, of, it depended upon where you were across the country, was how schools responded to this global pandemic that we dealt with. And the inability um, of some of our students to really connect um, with their teachers, um, yeah, both in a in just being able to come into classrooms. Um, I had students who, who uh, for the entire year, met online um, for whatever reasons, you know, and uh, and so that made it that made it even much more difficult to to really kind of have some of these hard conversations um, across the board. Um, and so, you know, whether it's my experience or you know similar experiences across the country. Um, it's been a challenging 18 to 24 months. And, and that kind of raises another issue, which is we have a lot going on in this country. Um, just take Texas. 
uh, Texas, we had people dying in the winter because their electricity, their electrical grid went out. And, and the, as, as you would put it, Nate, the crummy PD <laughs> that happens occasionally <laughs> is dominating <laughs> the state legislature mm-hmm. in Texas. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something deeply wrong when when state legislators are not focused on things that will keep their uh, constituents alive, healthy, and um, uh, uh, you know able to function, but instead are uh, you know, uh, focusing on some rather bizarre notions of what goes on in schools. I'll just say it. <laughs> I think it's easier for them to do it that way than to answer the question about why they were willing to let their constituents die. So it's easier to, to, to feign concern about young people and students learning and it's all subterfuge, right? Uh, who said it was my, no, it was um, Toni Morrison said that racism is subterfuge. It's, it's, a, it's distraction. And so they're whipped up and, and they are very savvy politicians who know their constituents and they know how easily stirred up they are on matters of race, matters of potential race, of race and racism, because it speaks to their position once again the idea of who matters and has uh, cultural and social capital in our country. When you start pushing against that, you get this kind of moral panic that Nate's been talking about. And um, they know how to do that because they do it all the time because they get the results they want. So, you know, they're learning from their constituents to do that thing because it works all the way back to when. (laughs) You can keep going back and then. It's an excellent question to, to um, ask why this particular moral panic at this time. Um, and Karen, you know, a couple things back to what you said. I do think students in many places have been leading. Um, but, um, you know, I, and I, but I also think that teachers, you know, you were asking, was the George Floyd moment the mo- moment that made teachers, a lot of white teachers, wake up and start to think about some of these issues? I think it, in my experience, and I've been teaching in predominantly white districts where the teachers are predominantly white, I would say um, the current wave of, 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 of teachers starting to be more sensitive to responding to what's going on in the world in their, in their history and, 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 and English classrooms um, probably started a little bit, bit with, with Ferguson. Um, and, um, so we saw, I saw some changes in how I taught and how teachers were teaching. Um, and then the George Floyd murder certainly, um, was a second, um, shockwave. Um, and then, then that's becomes the backlash, right. Uh, to that, um, just like Newtown, right. Got, uh, us thinking, but then it was Parkland where the, the real, um, activism, um, particularly on the, on the part of students, um, was, was to make that push. And so I, I do think uh, the, the protests uh, last summer and the widespread acceptance uh, of those 
uh, of, the, of the goals of the protesters um, in that time period was quite alarming to politicians on the right. Uh, and as you said, they're, they are very good at uh, this and, and, and they're successful. They, they have been good at intimidating teachers. We've seen it happen with science teachers. Nate mentioned the scopes trial, but we've seen it in the last couple of decades as well with climate change and with evolution, where at this point, actually, science teachers, a recent survey showed that science teachers were behind where parents are in terms of teaching the consensus around evolution and the consensus around climate change. And so that's partly um, teachers' uh, beliefs, but it's also partly teachers believing that they're gonna get in trouble for teaching to what their discipline tells them they should be teaching. Right, that's right. The chilling effect is definitely um, effective. It, it, it achieves the goal, you know, even if they're not able to go inside every single classroom, which we know they're not, just the possibility of litigation, of job loss will have the effect that is intended. Well, and even perhaps not being supported by an administrator, uh, not being given opportunities uh, within your district. Uh, and so I've seen teachers intimidated in lots of ways by parents and, and administrators into behaving differently. Um, and, uh, and, and now we've got the law behind, behind it. And as Anton pointed out, a, a, a world of trolls, um, the ability to, um, to terrify um, teachers by calling and demanding that they be fired from somebody across the country um, by being uh, piled on to on social media because their bio has the word equity in it. So uh, there's a there's a million points of intimidation that that is out there. So so how how can teachers um, respond, how, how should and can they respond to this? I mean, so Anton, you're the head of a national organization. You, you should have some answers for us. How, <laughs> I'm going to really put you on the spot on this one. Uh, yeah, it would be nice to kind of, you know, wave a magic wand and, and make sure everything is okay. Uh, but you know, uh, it, it's not going to be that way. Um, you know, the uh, National Council for Social Studies, along with many other organizations, have, have come out um, uh, in in support of uh, academic freedom and and decrying some of the um, some of the legislation that's going on out there. I think for us, what we're working on, quite honestly, is to uh, help to provide teachers with the kind of resources they'll need um, to do that. And to that, we actually have to rely upon the teachers, right? Um, they're the, as I said somewhere along the way, uh, they're the experts in the classroom and they're the ones that 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 really and truly know how to address some of these issues. Um, so, um, you know, those are some of the things that we're gonna be working on uh, going through the school year. And it, we don't, and, and the problem is, is that it, it, it's not going to resolve itself tomorrow. We're not gonna wake up tomorrow when teachers are gonna suddenly be able to go, okay, everything's okay, um, because it's not. Uh, it's going to be a struggle um, as the school year continues um, and into the future. Well, that's kind of depressing, Anton. I'm sorry, but <laughs> that's <laughs> well, a depressing way to end this. 
Uh, you know, <laughs> but, I, I like I said, I'd, I, I would love it to all be, uh, you know, sunshine and, you know, uh, unicorns and rainbows and happy, happy faces. Uh, well, I was more looking case. for, you know, some strength and solidarity. <laughs> uh, well, I we do have that. I think, you know, I, I do think that 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 the social studies teachers across the country um, are going to start coming together. Um, there, there's going to be there's going to be some conversations in terms of, you know, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And I think those are conversations that 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 teachers have to have um, because, you know, one of the things that that we're certainly pushing for is this whole notion of civic discourse. Um, and, and we can have some of these conversations, uh, these difficult conversations, you know, but they have to be informed. They can't be. Um, they can't simply just be uh, talking points from either side. Um, and so those are the kind of hard conversations that that are going to have to happen. Yeah, maybe within schools, within departments, um, within classrooms. And, you know, um, and, and it's going to take some time for, for all of this to, to occur. Um, you know, I think the other thing, unfortunately, is that is a lot of this happened while many teachers were uh, on break. Um, and I don't know that that's you know, a, a coincidence. I, I, won't, not. I won't comment. I will. Of yeah. course not. Nate, go, go for it. <laughs> if I may. If I may. If I may. I see this as a moment for courage. There are court precedents around student speech. Uh, Mary Beth Tinker carried out her protest against the Vietnam War. Uh, Bethel versus Frazier, <laughs> the unfortunate bong hits for Jesus case. There are multiple examples. Uh, the Supreme Court has basically uh, codified student speech and put limits and protections for it. Uh, I think this is an opportunity for teachers to remember that, first off, we are the practitioners, we are the professionals. And in the end, we are right in what we are doing. Uh, if I can, Justice Fortas wrote, and I mentioned this early on, Epperson versus Arkansas in 1968. The state's undoubted right to prescribe the curriculum for its public schools does not carry with it the right to prohibit on pain of criminal penalty the teaching of a scientific theory or doctrine where that prohibition is based upon reasons that violate the First Amendment. The law is on our side. And so I would say to teachers listening to this, if you're a practitioner right now, be courageous. If you have a lesson that you're nervous about and it's best for kids and it's grounded in justice and it gives them a better view of society and a more holistic view of American history, teach that lesson. Do not be cowed by the people. Do not be cowed. Do not be fearful. And I'll agree. I wish the teachers didn't have to be brave, but they do. And we can help each other be brave. So if you know that's a good lesson for you, get your colleagues to teach the same lesson with you. If you know that it's what's going on in your school is good teaching, find your friends that teach in the next school and work with them. I do think that teachers can work with each other in, in, in and a lot of it's happening online already, I know, um, but not just be emotional support for each other, but be um, curricular support for each other um, and provide the insulation of we are a, prof a professional, but we're a professional community. I'm, I'm not just some outlier out here doing some crazy random thing. This is what we do. Uh, and I think that's important. I agree. And to that, and I'll just leave it with, with this thing. Um, there's a statement that talks about the four essentials of freedom to learn, um, which state that the, the right to study and discuss significant issues, social, economic, and political, the right to access publications or statements that um, have a bearing on the issue, 
right to study and discuss all sides of the issue in an atmosphere free uh, from compulsion and the right to reach and express an opinion that may be different from that of other members of the class. Uh, that was a statement made by the National Council for the Social Studies in 1951. Wow. Um, and the same holds true in 2021. Absolutely. Freedom to learn. Well, that seems like a great note to end on. I really want to thank you all. Uh, we will be putting some resources in the show notes, such as links to your book and your podcast, Nate. I think um, you proved why people might want to listen to your podcast today. And Anton, to your organization, the National Council for the Social Studies. So I want to thank Ann Lutz-Fernandez, Nate Bowling, and Anton Schulsky. That wraps up the third episode of Ed Trust's new podcast, Ed Trusted. We want to thank you all. We also want to thank everyone at Ed Trust whose work supports this podcast, including, but not limited to, Robin Harris, Nicole Grayson, Karen Lomax, Jack Fleming, and Keith Curry. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast. Our theme music is composed by Joser. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. See you next time. Bye.